Hello, and welcome back to Talking Tomlet. I'm one of your hosts, Yardana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta, Anne Gordon. Today, we will be discussing Brachot Dap Memtet 49. So today, we're going to start with a request, actually, from one of our uh, co-learners, Noah, who wanted us to do a uh, who's who on the Rish Galuta. So we saw the Rish Galuta, I think it was on the previous staff, and the Rish Galuta appears again on this staff, and you'll see on tomorrow's DAP on DAP Nun, even more information about the Reish Galuta. So who was the Reish Galuta and why is that person um, important? And also why is that person sort of just given this name of the Reish Galuta? So basically the English translation of that would be the Exilarch. And essentially what that was is the political leader of the Jewish community who was in Bavel. Um, and there was actually an Exilarch, my understanding is, until actually like the mid-1200s. Uh, and um, you can actually look in a book called Seder Olam Zuta, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, at another podcast. That's a whole other interesting book. Um, actually records the names of who some of these Reish Galutas actually were. Um, so it's interesting that the Reish Galuta actually is never named. And I think one of the reasons for that is it was really a political appointment. It wasn't a sage. It wasn't a Talmud Chacham, but it was the person who was sort of the political leader of the Jewish people um, in the diaspora. And obviously that Bavel at the time, Babylon was sort of the largest diaspora um, community. The other thing to keep in mind and why I think we chose to do the Reish Galuta in Brachot is that the Reish Galuta, because of their being a political appointment, had a court. And a lot of what gets talked about, and this is why it's very relevant to the discussion around Berkat Amazon, around the blessing after we eat, is they would have these large festive meals. Um, and therefore, a lot of what we know about how we ate, things about Zimun, really are taught by incidences that may have happened in the Reish Galuta's house. On tomorrow's staff, uh, so I guess I'm doing a little combo on Nun also, um, you're going to see an interesting uh, piece about how many people would actually eat at the Reish Galuta and a question of was there one benching for everybody? Was there one Zimun, excuse me, for everybody? Or would they break up into smaller groups of Zimun uh, because there were so many people that you basically couldn't hear other people um, benching? And was that respectful to the Reish Galuta, not respectful to the Reish Galuta, but what we do know is besides having this political court with these very festive meals is that often there would be Tamidei um, Chachamim, uh, there would be sages who would sort of sit in that court. Sometimes in the Gemara, you'll see them referred to as the Rabbanan, Debei Reish Galuta, like the, the rabbis who sort of lived within that court. Um, and so, you know, we just wanted to do this as a, um, uh, you know, sort of as a, as a who's who, um, that it's just, this is something that we will see. It was a reality of diaspora life in, um, in Bavel, um, and just something to see in particular to what we're learning about that sort of these very large meals that would take place where everybody would sort of come together to eat together. And from there, we learn a lot of different laws and customs about the correct way to eat. And anything that you want to add to that? Um, no, I just think that we don't usually think about the laity. No, I don't mean the laity. I mean the the secular leadership of of this era. And but Chazal clearly were it's part and parcel of their lives, right? Like that's it's a it's an interesting tidbit that I 
I think is driven home by this, the presence of the Reish Galuta in these Dapim as, you know, like the guy that they all knew. So, I mean, obviously it wasn't all of them. It wasn't every generation and it's not the same people. And if we're going to be historical about it, what I'm saying will break down. But the point of there is religious leadership and there is secular leadership in the Jewish world. And, we, you know, you've talked about in the past, the, the Nasi and the Av Beitin, right? Like there's still this phenomenon of a recognition that there is a secular leader um, and who has the leadership contacts, you know, to the rest of the world, to the rest of the secular yeah. world. Oh, and sorry, one thing I did want to mention is, is that, the, when did the Reish Galuta start? So probably already started by the time of Yehoiachin, who was the last of the kings from the line of Yehuda from Judah. And that when he went into Babel, that's when they started having this Reish Galuta. Um, and so there is some mention of the Reish Galuta actually already in Divrei Hayamim Aleph. Um, and you can see that that list. So this really was a very long institution. From, from basically from the time of the of, of the Galut, of the diaspora, the expulsion to Babel. And they're supposed to be of the line of David. Yes, and they're right? supposed to be from the line of David. Yes. They're supposed so to be from the there line you of David. See, Yehuda, Yehoiachin, you know, on down. And yes. that's, it's, it's quote unquote the king. I mean, it's not at all a king in terms of power, but in terms of the role this personality played within the Jewish community. You know. Right. Exactly. And that, right. And that's why the tradition is that Yehoiachin, who was carried off to be captured in Babel, and we'll learn about him more because there's a couple of very interesting things about when he was actually brought to Babel and that he may have actually brought part of the Beit HaMikdash with him and built a synagogue there. We'll, we'll see that Gemara at another time. But I think some of the, and again, whether all this is historically accurate is always a question. But I think some of this, again, is to show that there was some sort of political sway or an attempt to keep some types of community with political power in the diaspora and also to trace it to these kings, right, to keep that, you know, we, again, in a rabbinic Judaism world, it's the Tamizei Chachamim who become primarily important. And we see that shift. We've talked about this before, you know, with with Rabbi Yochanan giving up Yerushalayim and Rabbi Gamliel II trying to solidify himself as the first Nasi outside of Yerushalayim. But the Reish Galuta and that position is also saying that the political power, the remnant of Mahut David, was also still very important to the character and personality of a diaspora community. Yeah, I think that's uh, a, a strong and accurate thing to say. Um, okay, now, it, it should be noted, and you did note it, of course, that the Reis Galuta's presence here is in the context of a story, you know, a phenomenon of discussing Birkat Amazon, because really that is our topic, right? These asides to the Reis Galuta is the, the Masa Shahaya, the, the story that took place in that event, whatever, is always an aside. So here I'm want to bring us back to on on Memtet Amabet. The it really begins Memtet Aleph and continues on Tamabet. There's a lot of discussion of Birkat Hamazon. What happens if you bench and you make an error? You forget that it's that you forget that it's Shabbos and you're supposed to say Ritzay, or you think that it is Shabbos and you're supposed to say Ritzay and it's not Shabbos, right? Like meaning I'm not the there's a bunch of different cases of what if you make this error. And sometimes, rarely is the answer that you have to go back and say it again. And most of the time, the answer is, no, it's okay. You don't have to go back. So then, so after this, or kind of in the midst of it, there's um, a discussion in the Gemara that I think is salient to what exactly what it is, this nature of the Birkat Amazon. When are you going to go back and when are you not going to go back? Obviously, I want to say the 
I just want to note that the very fact that the Gemara is again talking about what happens if you made a mistake and you're going to go back. So it's a recognition that people are people and we do make mistakes. What is the difference between the Amida and Birkat Amazon? And you might say, well, there's so much different, right, between them because, you know, one is the bracha, four bracha linked together that you say after you've eaten to thank God for the, your food. And the Amida is the crux of the whole fila, of the whole fila that we do, connected Korbanot, connected Avot, right? all these things that we've talked about now for now for weeks, right? The idea that that the tefillah itself would be similar to benching is, on the face of it, unusual. But So, so Rav Avin had said this to Rav Amram, and Rav Amram says, "Oh, I had that same question, and I went and I asked Rav Nachman about it." and Rav Nachman said, Elanechzi Anan. He says, and this this buck passing is very interesting, right? He said, I did not hear this reason from Marshmul myself, himself, meaning I did not hear it from himself from Marshmul himself, but I heard it, right? I know that this is the reason. Let's see if we can analyze it. Elanechzi uh, Anan, right? Let's let's us figure it out. Tfila de Chovahi, Machzirinoto. Well, tefillah is an obligation and you must go, but if you make a mistake, let's say you forget Yalaviyava or whatever it is that you're going to make your error in the recitation of this of this tefillah, because it is itself a chova, meaning a Torah commandment, then you're, uh, you know, uh, in this, according to this opinion, then you have to go back. Berkat Amazon, it says it's not a chova. What does it mean it's not a chova? Obviously, if you've eaten the right amount that will in the right amount of time that will entail the requirement to say Birkat Amazon, that is an obligation. But the Gemara here says if he wants to eat, he eats. If he doesn't want to eat, he does not eat. And we do not require him to go bench, right? If he didn't eat. So we say then Ein Machzimirato. If he makes a mistake in Birkat Amazon, we don't require usually, we don't require that he would repeat the Birkat Amazon because. He didn't have to eat to begin with and therefore be obligated in Berkat HaMazon. But if you're talking about the Amidah, the Amidah is not that flexible, right? The idea is that the, the Amidah, you make a mistake, then you're, the essence of your tefillah is no longer connected to what it's supposed to be. So you have to go back and do it again. It's a different kind of obligation, let's say. So then the last Gemara, the, the last case, rather, right before this um, comparison, is the question of what about if you if it's Rosh Chodesh and you forget to say Rosh Chodesh in Yalaviyavo, you forget to say it in Berkat Amazon. So the Gemara concludes that's not the end of the world because Berkat Amazon is to begin with, quote unquote, optional. Optional meaning if you don't eat, you're not obligated to bench. Um, obviously, I mean, the Gemara here paints it pretty starkly. I would say that obviously this is only talking about you know, a for formal meal that is that contains bread and so on. And what if you just were, I don't know, eating cashew nuts, right? Like, or whatever else, almonds, right? Grapes. Uh, grapes is tricky because of of the shivata minim. So let's leave that aside, right? But the idea is that what if you're gnashing and then does that count as not eating? Do you still need to bench? Well, you don't need to bench because you haven't fulfilled the requirements for benching, right? So the whole of this 
eating being optional, it doesn't mean eating is optional. It's eating in the manner that brings about the requirement to say Berkat HaMazon, that is optional. And therefore, if you goof in, in your recitation of Berkat HaMazon, the requirements incumbent upon you to go back, let's say, and start again is much, much less than if, if that were to happen for the Amidah. I, you know, what I was struck by with this whole section is just that concept of that, like, in a way that Amida Tfila is something we're always obligated in, but that you don't invoke upon yourself the obligation of Birkata Mazon till you eat was just very interesting to me. First of all, because people do have to eat right. <laughs> at some point. Um but I think it does give like a certain understanding of like different types of obligations or like how certain mitzvot come about. So what I would liken it to, which I know is something that Anne, you and I have talked about is like the mitzvah of making, you know, like of challah. So I think today like challah making has taken on a whole, you know, ritual to itself. And, um, I, you know, you and I had talked about, I've been toying with getting a bread machine and I was like, yes, but then you can't make the bracha because it doesn't have five pounds. And I think it's kind of like reframing it like, yeah, okay. So you can make challah without making like the bracha because you didn't obligate yourself in making the bracha. So I sometimes struggle with that. Like, cause we talked about it on a previous staff where we said, you know, that maybe there are certain meals that we have, like that shift in eating that we talked about where, you know, like you ate a really nice meal, but because you didn't eat bread, you're technically, you're not obligated to wash. I'm sorry, you're not obligated to bench. Um, so it made me think of that within this context also. Like there is some flexibility with the eating and the benching that we don't see with other mitzvot. Like there is an understanding that there's sort of like human choice in terms of what you eat, how you eat, what the meal consisted of. And that can impact therefore you know, if you actually end up needing to bench and therefore will impact, do you actually have to repeat benching if you made a mistake? I think there's also something that's kind of cavalier that's, that accompanies this kind of, if he ate, if he wants to eat, let him eat. If he doesn't want to eat, don't, then he shouldn't eat, right? Like the idea that you have this choice, it doesn't say if he wants to eat bread and he wants to eat a kazayat, if he, it doesn't go, it doesn't make the formal um, all those caveats that would then in- require him to bench, right? It says in this tone of like, oh, so don't eat, right? Which, again, there's plenty of ways that one can eat without being obligated in Birkana Mazon, but the idea that that's not even considered eating, right? Let's, And that's where the flippancy kicks, kicks in, I think. I, I think that there's that tone of, well, it's optional, kind of, right? Not really, but it is. So, and yeah, the Amidah is a very different kind of service, no matter what you do. You know, it's it's just a when we say that it is the essence of tefillah, and to the extent that we call the amida tefillah, right? It it you know, with no offense to birkat hamazon, they're just not the same. They have similarities. Exactly. They're both important. They're both the right depending on who you ask, right? But you know, yep, exactly. Just really not the same. And I think it gives us something to think about of like that we do have different mitzvot, have different types of obligations. There's a category you know, like the tefillah, which is something we just always have to do day in and day out. And that things that are under certain circumstances, we invoke a particular type of obligation to fulfill that mitzvah. And therefore, how that's put into practice may be different. So anyhow, we'll conclude with that. 
that's our dot for the day. Please remember to continue the conversation with us on our Facebook page. You can find us on all major podcasts on the Hadron website. Thank you to Michelle Farber. And until tomorrow's death, go and learn. 